Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we will begin in verse 15, and we will read through verse 29 of God's holy word. Solomon is seeking, trying to know, trying to comprehend, trying to understand everything that he sees in this world, the good, the bad, those who are oppressed, those who are oppressing, material things. He's constantly looking to try to understand, to wrap his mind around, to see the purpose, to see the meaning of it all. And this is his pursuit. Where is his wisdom getting him? What is he learning? And it seems no matter where he turns, what he looks for, he always centers back upon the Lord. Because there is where true wisdom lies. In our passage tonight, he's again trying to pursue wisdom. He's looking at a number of contrasts uh, throughout these particular verses here and really demonstrating the limitation of knowledge, the limitation of wisdom. His wisdom can only answer so many things, and it seems as if even in the verses you see almost a frustration on his part because he can't know more. He can't wrap his mind around things. And that really does bring us to some questions uh, regarding the content that he's looking at. We ask the same questions that he's looking at here. I mean, what can we really know in this life? What can we truly wrap our minds around to know with certainty? I'm not talking about with the Lord. I'm talking about just on a general scope here. I'm not referring to uh, those who say you can't really know truth or any other postmodern idea. That's not what I'm getting at. Talking about really know the answers to life's big questions. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem as if the wicked prospers? Why does it seem that the righteous suffer? What makes people tick? What makes people do the things they do? Can you really know a person and really understand exactly what it is that makes them act the way they do or, or whatever? Can we really know why people choose to do the things that they do uh, in response to something or how they respond to things or just in very uh, other uh, circumstances and situations? I mean, can you really know why people choose to do what they do? You know a person. You can be friends with them. You can get to know them as closely as you can. But do you really understand what makes them tick to say the things they do or respond in the way that they do? How do you wrap your mind around it? What can you really know? How do you make sense of not only things on a, a smaller level of people that you deal with, but on a grander scale? How can you look at the world and, and see how, again, the wicked seem to prosper? You have people that are in power who are respected by many, perhaps, but they've gotten there using means that are maybe not legal or trampling on others, being an oppressor. How is it that they seem to have the lives that they do? What, how do you make sense of all that? When you look at the world, why does it seem the wicked are rewarded and the righteous suffer loss? These are some of the things that Solomon is seeking to know. But at the same time as he is seeking to know these things, he is coming to grasp his limitations of what he can truly know and make sense of. But he does bring us to a certain conclusion that is the reality of things and a conclusion that we need to accept as well it really centers back on you really can't know and understand but you do trust in the one who does and that's where we have to rely upon that's where our, our faith has to be that's where that's where our focus has to be i don't understand i can't put my mind around it i don't know why this person can do this and get away with it etc etc but i know that god does and in that is where you can rest and, and truly have peace in situations or just in the frustration of looking at the world today. So Solomon's going to take us through some of these questions. 
And again, these are things that, this is the beauty about this book. It's written 3,000 years ago, and yet it's almost as if it was written just last week. Because these questions that he asks are questions that are on our minds. They're on our hearts. They're so applicable today. And the answers that he gives and the direction that he leads truly can give us some peace at heart. Let's look at this passage together in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We will begin in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. God's word says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is, <clears throat> there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they sought out many devices. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would... Uh, Guide our thoughts tonight as we look to your word, that the Spirit of God would apply your word to our hearts, that he would open our minds to understand as best as we can, and Father, that we would be changed by knowing your word even more. We pray that our attention will be given to your word, and that our hearts will be lifted up in praise to you as the answer to all things. We don't understand why things are, but we know that you do, and in that we can rest. Father, bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. For in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> There's a lot of things here that he goes over. They seem to be just uh, random statements at times, but they're really all connected. When he's trying to discover, when he's testing all things, uh, when he's seeing everything. He, this is really a complete thought here, even though it seems to just be random. He begins <clears throat> looking at the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And then he says some very interesting things about those who seek to be exceedingly righteous and who are exceedingly wicked. And we'll get to that in just a moment. One of the things he points out. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. You know, when he looks out over the world, what, how can he make sense of everything that he's seen? How can he wrap his mind around it? And really, the only thing that you can come to is the understanding that we have from the rest of Scripture that when you see these two contrasting things, you recognize that this is a fallen world. But this is a sinful world, and it's going to be difficult to wrap your mind around things and to make sense of it. There's a righteous man who perishes, perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. 
You know, it's almost as him looking and saying, how is it that the righteous man who is trying to practice righteousness, holiness in his life, can die at a young age perhaps, and then he looks over at the wicked, and the wicked are continually scheming and continually oppressing, and, and, and they live long lives. How can this be? How do you make sense of that when the righteous are serving the true and the living God? The psalmist <clears throat> had similar questions. The psalmist in Psalm 73, here's what he says. This is a good portion, but just listen to the thoughts that are going through his mind because these are some of the thoughts that go through our own minds at times. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Even the psalmist is saying, how does this work? I don't understand this. Of course, the psalmist is going to come to a wonderful conclusion in the latter half of that same psalm. But just taking those first verses of what he is saying, these are some of the things perhaps that Solomon is looking out on and he's seeing himself. How do you make sense of that? Now we can try to come up with some, some reasons as to why it is that, that you know, why the Lord would, would take the righteous maybe at a young age and then why he would allow the wicked to last into their 80s and 90s or whatever. You can look at it in a sense perhaps just as one suggestion Maybe God's common grace because they are going to endure the wrath of God when they leave this world. And so this is a period of time in which God is just being kind and not, not taking them uh, to their final destination yet. Now we can reason with some of that and maybe some of that could be partially true. But really when you look at everything, righteous die young, righteous live old, wicked die young. Wicked live old, but he's looking at it in the sense of, of, of the righteous being, being suffering and their lives are not prolonged by their righteousness. You would think perhaps of those who are serving the Lord and they are serving the Lord faithfully. Why doesn't the Lord allow each one of his people to endure a very long life? And why does he allow those ones over there who are his enemies to live long lives? Why doesn't he take them, take them out as... as you know, quickly as they begin their wickedness. When you look in our government, for example, you sit there and you wonder, that person really has to be old. How are they still alive? How are they still there? We think things like that. Which at the same time, we should be thinking, oh Lord, you can, you can change the hearts of anyone, even in their old age. Lord, let your will be done. And that's where we have to keep ourselves in check. And we're going to understand that point here in just a moment as well. So there's what Solomon's looking at. The righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. How do you make sense of that? Well, the only way you can make sense of it is to recognize that, again, the very things that we find within the rest of Scripture is that this world is sinful. We live in a sinful world. You're going to have... The righteous, you're going to have the unrighteous. You're going to have a combination of some living to be old, some dying young, some living to be old, some dying young. And that's, you can't make sense of it. You can't wrap your mind around it. You don't know why the Lord takes someone at a young age and why he, why he allows others to live longer. Again, just trying to understand that, 
you're, you're, you're going to boggle your mind because it's, it's inscrutable. You can't understand. And so he moves from there in the sense of looking at this world. And he says something very interesting, which at first kind of makes us step, step back and say, what does he mean by that? He says, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Isn't it good to be righteous? Isn't it good to be wise? I mean, he's, he's been saying that already. Wisdom is worth seeking. It's good. So what's he referring to? Well, we'll come back to that, but verse 17 is going to be the contrast of that. And we can, we can understand this one perhaps a lot better. Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, some of those statements, and again, this is looking at just from a human level of things, a human perspective. This one we can understand a little bit better. You have those who, at young ages, you fall into the wrong crowd. They get you know, in gangs or whatever, and they end up committing all sorts of horrible crimes. They end up killing other people of the same age as them because they fell into this sin, this wickedness. So don't go down this road. Don't participate in, in all the, the vile things that they do, all the violence. You know, one theologian was pointing out as he was looking at this particular verse, he said, I mean, just consider the Godfather. Half the people die before the end of the movie, and you're not surprised. Why are you not surprised? Because what they're doing. They're vile, evil people who are killing each other. So we understand that. We can, we can wrap our minds around that. So in light of that being on one side of the spectrum, don't be exceedingly sinful, exceedingly wicked. So what does he mean by exceedingly righteous? Well, as some commentators have pointed out, he is referring to the goody two-shoes. He's referring to perhaps those who are not the exceedingly wicked, but they have went on the other extreme, very much like legalism. Uh, one theologian actually called these folks, or called this whole scenario, the soulless bootstrapper. These who try to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and try to gain favor with God by doing so. Thinking that if they live a more righteous life and they make these rules for themselves and they set this in their life, that by doing these things that they are honoring the Lord. These are the ones trying to gain favor by their, their deeds, by their works, or even by their good works and by their righteousness, trying to sway or force God's hand to do something because of the way that they're living. And these, these folks are easy to spot because whatever it is that they have set for themselves in their own life, they try to impose upon others. This is what gains favor with God. <clears throat> you ought to do the same. These particular ones are very, very good at spotting the speck in your, your eye, but not paying much of attention to the big log that's in their own. They do a lot of examination to others and setting the bar, uh, their particular set of standards that others should meet, but they rarely look at it themselves. They are very legalistic. And so Solomon is saying, don't be on either extreme. You're not going to prolong your life by living righteously. He already sees that. You're not going to necessarily die young because you're exceedingly wicked, but you can. Both of these positions would be very arrogant positions to have. To think you can do whatever you want and God ain't going to see or that you can be excessively righteous and gain favor with God by your deeds. It's good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, he says. For with one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Now, one thing that one commentator had pointed out, when you have these two extremes and you have the middle understanding of things of, of both sides of this, that you're trying to live righteously, but you're living 
righteously understanding your own shortcomings, and yet you're not trying to fall into sin. By all means, we try to battle sin all the time. But we recognize that our salvation, that our, our peace and all of this is not contained in ourselves because we know who we are. And when you can grasp that, you're grasping a hold of, of what is good, grasping a hold of, of God, fearing God. And that's where he's really moving that towards. You know, it was, it was uh, Martin Luther who coined that phrase, simul justus et peccator, at the very same time, saint and sinner. And this is the reality that we have to accept. You're never going to be in that state of perfection here. We don't succumb to it. We don't, we don't give ourselves over to wickedness just because we have this understanding. We're never going to be perfect. But we stay true to what we know to be true of God and his word. And we try to live righteously as best as we can. And we lay hold of him who laid hold of us. And that's our only answer to that. So this is one of the first things that he looks at. Perfect righteousness doesn't prolong life. But rather grasp a hold of the Lord. But he, he's looking further... We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. This is the things that go on there. We can't make sense of it. But here's what we do. We cling to the Lord. But then he, he, he looks even further. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So we know that wisdom is good. We know that this is something worth pursuing because of what he just said there. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. This is good. But what does he see then? In this fallen world in which you can't make sense of anything, wisdom is good. You seek after wisdom. But, but even in seeking after wisdom, he looks and he says, There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Even wisdom, as good as it is, the wonderful pursuit that we should all be undertaking, trying to understand uh, God, his word, Gaining wisdom from the scripture, it still cannot perfect any. So what good then is wisdom? What do we do with that? We're seeking after it. We want to learn. We want to know. We want to understand what's pleasing in the sight of God. We desire for the spirit of God to conform us to what we understand and what we read. But it's never going to perfect us in this life because he just says that there are, there's no man on earth who continually does good, who never sins. And you have the Apostle Paul who's quoting this in Romans 3, that there are none good, not even one. This, we live in this fallen world. We live in this sinful world filled with a bunch of sinners, even the wise. Even the wise are sinners. How do, they, how, how do you know because here, here's an example that he gives. If we, if we dare question what he just said, that there's not even one who does good, who continually does good. Some people, and of course those who believe in what's referred to as full sanctification, meaning that as you, once you become a believer that you're no longer a sinner and you are fully sanctified in the sense of no longer sinning, They would look at that and perhaps and say, that ain't me. Maybe they'd say that. But here's an example that shows us the level of depravity that we all uh, still fall prey to. It says, also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. How does he see, or how does he come to the conclusion that there is none who does continually good and that, that the, the world is filled with sinners? And we question that. Well, how, how, does he, how does he figure that? How does he understand that? And all he has to point to is your mouth. Your mouth gives it away of your depravity. 
as we were talking about the other day, talking about James, how the, the tongue is set on fire with hell. How the tongue can, can penetrate to the deepest recesses of a person, even more so than physically harming them. How what you say, the words that you say to others can cut very, very deep. And those wounds take a long time to heal. This is how, this is his, this is his example. This is how you know that what he's saying is true. Looking over this world, wisdom is good. You seek after wisdom, and yet you're still a sinner. You still sin. And you know you still sin by the things that you say. Wisdom's still desirable. Because as one theologian pointed out, only a fool would fail to desire wisdom. But that wisdom can never bring you to a state of perfection. Now, just looking at the example, though, as just a little side note here, there are some important things to look at, and especially in our own time in which you have social media. You have keyboard warriors who like to say all kinds of things on social media that most likely they would never say to your face. But they say it. And even though they're writing it, it's enough to to get you upset, to begin to anger you. Uh, and so you think that you have to give a response to everything. Uh, set people straight. Spend an hour arguing with someone just to set them straight. Now, there's good debate that can happen, but is, is it, if it's cordial, that's, one, that's really good. But look at what he says. Don't take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you, even some of the closest relationships that you have. Don't be surprised if you hear someone saying things about you. And don't take it too seriously. For when you say things about others, you don't want them to take it seriously. You don't want them to, to get angry with you because of something that you said in, in a moment of anger. We tell other people that, but then when it comes to ourselves, we think we have to defend ourselves. We want to tell people as one character said to the other in Tombstone, I was just fooling about. If you know that reference, you're a believer. If not, you better get saved. But that's how we, that's how we respond. And what does he say there? Don't take it so seriously. Because you know that you've done the same things. And that's a, that is, of course, some wisdom directed right at the readers. That is very applicable in our own day, especially in the day of social media. I, I don't have a Twitter. There's reasons I don't have one. But looking at those who do, some of the the theologians that we read, they, they cannot make any kind of a statement without numerous people coming to argue or to criticize or any of that. And so what's he saying? Don't be so hypersensitive. And they're really good examples because they don't answer everybody. They don't feel like they have to. And there's some... There's some good applications there for ourselves. Don't be so hypersensitive that you think you have to give an answer to everybody. But going back to what is he, he's initially saying, just look at your own words and what you say that is the demonstration that you're a sinner in a fallen world. So he says... I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise. Well, what is he saying here? But it was far from me. Trying to make sense of it all. Everything that he's saying up to this point. What has been as remote and exceedingly mysterious, who can discover it? So as he's looking over the righteous and the unrighteous and contrasting the two, and he's seeing the extremes of both of these, and he's saying to the readers, grasp the Lord, cling to the Lord. And then he says, wisdom's good to pursue, but then it doesn't perfect you because you're still a sinner. He, he just, he's desiring to know and to try to have some kind of an answer. 
What is the meaning of all of this? How do you make sense of it? And he says, I tested all this with wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. I'm going to come up with an answer. But then he says that the answer was far from him. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? There's limitations to wisdom. And you're seeing that here in these passages as he's looking out over everything. There's not going to be answers to things in this life. You're not going to understand. We can understand, generally speaking, as far as maybe in categories, what's going on. But to really understand the deep down things that go on within people or how things are working and the, how they correspond together, you can't know that. Because our wisdom, even the smartest man who ever lived, second, of course, to the Lord Jesus, he couldn't figure it out. He was limited in what he could understand. And you almost see a frustration there. I tested this with wisdom. I was setting my mind to know these things. But it was far from me. I couldn't know it. Because it's too far from me. It's too high. It's too, too grand of, of things to try to wrap my own finite mind around. No matter how smart that he may have been. So he sees this fallen world. He sees this fallen world filled with sinners. He can't come up with an answer. So then he looks and he, he sees this fallen world. It's also filled with fools. Not only sinners, but fools. I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation. And to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. This is the things that he's been going over thus far within this book. Now this is a very interesting thing that he says and a little difficult in one sense. I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. What is he referring to here? Of course, this depiction of this woman is one who is a seductress. I mean, her heart is snares and nets. She's also one who doesn't just seduce, but who forcefully seeks after because her hands are chains. What is he talking about? And as one man had pointed out, that he is, that this woman here is the personification of folly. Because these are very things that he did in the book of Proverbs. And just one particular passage, and chapter 1 is filled with it as well. You've got some in chapter 4. But in Proverbs chapter 3, here's an example. Beginning of verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom... And the man who gains understanding for her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happier are all those who hold her fast. So you have wisdom being personified, and then in chapter 7, you also have uh, the adulteress being personified. Verse 4, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house I looked, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he, <clears throat> and he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, he, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. And you have the adulterous woman there being personified as well. 
So looking at how he does those things within Proverbs and then the statements that you have here, it is very likely that this is the same scenario that he is personifying folly. What, what is it that people are captured by? What is it that ensnares? And it could be a variety of things. But it comes down to it's folly. It's foolishness. What kind of foolishness can take hold of you? What kinds of things is it that ensnare you? What are the temptations that you wrestle with the most? He looks here and he says, The one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, for the sinner will be captured by her. The fools freely indulge in whatever ensnares them. But the righteous are seeking to flee, not be captured by its snares, by its nets, by its chains. Again, trying to seek out wisdom, trying to get an explanation, to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And one of the things he looks at is the personification of folly itself and how it captures a hold of of people how foolishness can chain chain someone up as it were the righteous are to flee the righteous have a way of escape but the sinner will be captured by her you know one good example of this especially when you're looking at perhaps uh, the way that this woman is depicted maybe sexual sins you have in genesis 38 you have how uh, Tamar had seduced Judah by dressing as a harlot, and Judah succumbed to her. But then in the very next chapter, chapter 39, you have Joseph, who is tempted by Potiphar's wife, and he flees. He did not fall into the same uh, snare as his older brother. That's what he's referring to, just folly and foolishness. This world is full of fools who indulge in these things, who freely do so and don't recognize that they are ensnared by it. He says, behold, I have discovered this. So many things he says there. I tested this. I directed my mind. I'm, I'm discovering this. I'm wanting to know. I'm seeking this is him trying to grasp, trying to grasp, lay hold of this world and try to understand it, to understand folly and understand righteousness, not being able to discover it, not understanding how perhaps it all corresponds together. But then he turns his attention to something very interesting. Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Now, what in the world did he mean by that? There was a number of opinions on this because it is a very difficult uh, passage to understand what does he mean by that but if we look at the overall um, desire of Solomon within these passages here he's desiring to understand and to wrap his mind around all of all things of the world we're living in a fallen world we can't understand the how the righteous and the the, the wicked how how all this work together how do we wrap our minds around the things that we see in the contrast of the two that we looked at how, how do you look over the world and you see all these sinners and then you, we're, the, we're supposed to be the wise in the, in the word of God and, and the, the one, those who have obtained the salvation of the Lord and yet we still sin. How do you make sense of that? Look at folly. Look how, look how foolish this can capture people. But God has made a way of escape for the, for the righteous. And so perhaps as one man had pointed out, his explanation 
seeing the flow of things as, it, as it's moving from a grand scale of the world and it's starting to come down a little bit more personal perhaps. Adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I'm still seeking but have not found. And one uh, man had pointed out that with this, this language of finding and, and have found, it means to understand. I've not come to understand, but I have, understand, I, I have understood one man among a thousand. Again, looking at people, even those that you're close to, trying to understand what makes them tick. What makes them who they are? What makes them say the things that they do? What makes them do the things that they do? Can you really understand? And he's saying perhaps out of a thousand, he's understood one. But I have not found or understood a woman among all these. Maybe a close friend, someone that he knew. He could come to pretty clear understanding of who they were but not any woman we say that a lot in our own day I can't understand women well, of course you can't you're not one just the same as women say that about men I don't understand men well, of course because you're not one how are they wired I'm not quite sure if we're wired or not it's very interesting how we function. I remember at our previous church, one particular man was preaching one night, and he was talking about men and women, and he was talking about the differences of how we think. And he, he used this example. He said, you know, if you were to ask a man, as he's maybe driving down the road, and this has absolutely happened, if you ask a man as he's driving down the road, what are you thinking about? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? Literally thinking of nothing. I have nothing on my mind I'm thinking of. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this. That's not how I function. So I'm not thinking of anything. I'm looking at the road. That's it. And what, what uh, this particular man was pointing out in his sermon was it's like men have boxes in their brains. You can open a box. Whatever's in there you can think about, whatever, this box can close. And then you open up another. And then you're thinking about this over here. You don't have to think about these simultaneously. You think about this, this box closes. Open up a new box, and maybe no box is open. And you're not thinking of anything. But for ladies, he was saying, ladies don't have boxes. They have wires. And it's constantly zipping back and forth to one thing, to another thing, to another thing, constantly thinking about things. Now, granted, that was a man trying to understand the ladies. But I think for the men who were there, we were thinking, mm-hmm, that sounds reasonable to me. Because we don't function that way. We have to come up with some explanation because we don't understand. So there are just things that you can't understand. And as Solomon here, who is very well acquainted with ladies, his concubines and all of his wives adding up to a thousand, <laughs> couldn't even understand one of them. How do you wrap, wrap your mind around it? How does... How, how do you understand fully? Well, you can't because your, your wisdom is limited. For a man, his wisdom is limited even when it comes to his own spouse. There are times of, of my own self I'm thinking, I don't get it. I don't understand. Because I'm not a woman and I can't identify with that. So even the most wisdom that you can gain, even for the most smartest man on the earth, he couldn't understand the world. 
He couldn't understand why the righteous seemed to suffer and the wicked seemed to be rewarded. He couldn't understand how you could still be a sinner even though you're pursuing the wisdom of God. He couldn't understand why it is that fools want to be ensnared with, with foolishness and not see that they've been caught in a net. He doesn't understand how people can be so hypersensitive of things and, and yet they do the very same things themselves. So what's his conclusion? Can't even understand any of his women. His wisdom's limited. And he's supposed to be the smartest. But what does he come back to? What's his answer? And this is really the, the only answer that we can give when it comes to trying to wrap our mind around anything, trying to know and understand how this world is working and what is the purpose in this event or what is the purpose in this event and how does it correspond together? How is it all working together? We don't know. But here's where he sums it up. Behold, I have found only this. I have come to understand only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. That's his conclusion. That's where he's leading all of that talk, all of that contrasting. Here's where he's coming to. I can't understand it. My wisdom is limited, but I can come to this understanding that the world is the way that it is because men have sought out their own schemes and their own devices. That's why things are the way that they are. God made men upright, but man sought out his own devices. That's his conclusion. And what is he saying even in that? That God made the world, God made everything, God has infinite knowledge of all things, God knew what was happening in the beginning, man sinned by his own volition, by the sovereign decree of God, and things are the way that they are because that's how God decreed it to be. So then what does that then point us to? My wisdom is limited, your wisdom is limited, but his wisdom is infinite. And he understands all the things that I can't. So instead of trying to wrap my mind around everything, why is this happening? Why does this person die so young? Why does this tragedy happen over here? Why does that person over there who seems to do all things illegal, how do they prosper the way that they do? The world is the way that it is. It's fallen. It's filled with sinners. It's filled with fools. And it's that way because men sought out his own devices. But this is where, because the one who created it has infinite knowledge of all things. As their opening passage, oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are, are his ways. We rest in him. We rest in Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. We can understand it. And we drive ourselves crazy trying to understand but this is where you have to, to release all that and say, Lord, I don't understand, but I know you do. So whatever lesson that I am to learn from this, help me at least learn the lesson. I can't understand why. I can't understand all of these other intricacies of everything. But let me understand perhaps even the lesson that I am to learn of this of how I can glorify you in this. Because I know this is your purpose. I know this is your sovereign will. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. So what then can I do in order to honor you and to glorify you in this? And that's where we go. That's where we, we, we run to. We run to him. Because there are many things that truly do frustrate us. They really do. As much as we don't want to admit it, they do. Things that frustrate us at work or things that frustrate us among uh, friends or family things that frustrate us within our own nation or in the world and they can really eat away at us but here again with so many other things that Solomon has said grasp unto the Lord recognize that this is all his sovereign decree honor him give him thanks for the good days Understand that the days of adversity are also ordained by him. And trust. Be confident that God knows what he's doing.
That's where we have to get. We cannot understand anything else. But through the revelation of Scripture, through the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts, we can come to a true knowledge of things as far as generally speaking of how and why things are the way that they are because the Scripture describes these things for us. Why do men sin? Because men sought out other devices. We can come to a, a true understanding of things as much as we can in order that our trust in the Lord will be even greater. But the details, it's only within the mind of God because the secret things belong to God. But in the meantime, trust, be confident in the Lord, and rest in the wisdom that he has revealed to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word and for this passage of scripture. How frustrating it is at times as we look upon this world and our nation and leaders and those uh, who are blatantly wicked and, and the authority that they have and the influence that they have. It's frustrating. Things in our own life frustrate us. We don't understand why. We can't give answers to folks who are going through pain and suffering because we don't understand the intricacies of why all this is occurring, but what we rest in is knowing that you do and that you have purpose for everything. You work all things after the counsel of your will. All things are working together for good to those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. You've declared the end from the beginning and your counsel will stand. Let us remember these truths that in our times of frustration we can sigh a breath of relief knowing that we don't have to understand. We don't have to know why because we have peace knowing that the one who dwells with us, who dwells in us, who has called us into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ understands and knows and has all things planned and does all things well. Father, give us peace in the midst of trying times and lift our countenance, lift our eyes up to you that we are focusing on what is good and right in the times of difficulty. To be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.